You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 31, Imperial Japan Part 2, Manchukuo, and the Black Dragon Society. Today I'm recording from the Amur River. After Korea, the next imperial land grab was Manchuria. Now, Manchuria is a complicated thing. The term itself is an exonym, or a common internal name, for a geographical region which includes various languages and peoples, right? And yes, technically that's true for like a lot of countries, but perhaps more so with Manchuria. Even the term Manchuria is somewhat controversial as a political unit, and somewhat less controversial as a general term. It would be reductive to say that Manchuria belongs to China, because that's both an abstraction and it's complicated, but for thousands of years, Manchuria was filled with Mongols, Han Chinese, other ethnic groups. It was often a kingdom with ongoing relations to Chinese dynasties, part of the Chinese empire, so to speak. And like, Manchuria is massive. People don't realize how big it is. It's twice the size of Texas, to make it simple, and while it's certainly not uninhabited, there are large swaths that are completely empty wilderness. What it never was, historically speaking, was part of Japan, yet Japan invaded Manchuria in 1934. Now, if we'll recall from last episode, Japan intervened in Korea in 1905, they formally annexed Korea in 1910, So what was Imperial Japan doing during those 20 years? For one thing, managing and exploiting Korea was itself a pretty big job. Especially with all those ongoing rebellions, Japan also acquired half of the Sakhalin Islands, they acquired the smaller Pacific Islands, they took over Taiwan back in 1895. But it's important to remember that Japan did not start from zero in Manchuria when they invaded. They already had a sizable presence there because of the South Manchurian Railway Company. Half of this company's stock was owned by the Japanese government, with Emperor Hirohito as the largest private shareholder, followed by the Mitsui and Mitsubishi industrial and banking conglomerates, which both had their own spy networks already. We know Mitsui spent 500,000 a year to maintain their spies, and their overseas business offices provided cover for secret military operations. Mitsui worked with far-right secret societies to carry out this vision of domination in Manchuria. Basically, because of the railroad, there were, in the words of the Seagraves, Japan's rogues, carpetbaggers, spies, secret policemen, financial conspirators, fanatical gangsters, drug dealers, and eccentric army officers. How were these rogues organized? It's time to introduce another far-right Japanese secret society. It was initially called the Amur River Society. Again, the name pretty much denotes the purpose, the expansion of Imperial Japan to the Amur River, which was the boundary between Manchuria and Russia. Now the Japanese language is interesting, because they have three alphabets, or more precisely, they have three character writing systems. There's kanji, one of the character systems, which has symbols that can be read in multiple ways, right? It's not unlike a word having multiple meanings, except it's tied to how it is written, right? 
Well, the Amur River Society, Kukuriokai, that name can be read a different way. The other reading of it is the Black Dragon Society. This isn't some sort of like hotep, you know, oh, this word actually means a different word, right? This is like a normal and acceptable interpretation of the two names for the same group. The goal of the Black Dragon Society was the total domination of all Asia. And the true ideologues even took it further than that. They believed the world was headed for something they called the eight corners of the world under one roof, which is to say, the eight corners of the entire world under the roof of the Sun God, the Emperor of Japan. The Black Dragon Society was started by Ryohei Uchida. Uchida was, of course, born in Fukuoka, like so many of these ultras. He was the son of a prominent martial artist. He became immersed deeply in martial arts as well. Uchida joined the Dark Ocean Society, and he eventually became the leading disciple of Mitsuru Toyama, who became his mentor. Uchida then founded the Black Dragon Society in 1901. He was also involved in the colonization and pacification of Korea. The purpose of the Black Dragon Society was to do to China what the Dark Ocean Society had already done to Korea, which is to say, to push or pull Japan into a conflict which would allow Japan the pretext of annexing Manchuria, and eventually China, and then to do the dirty work required to keep it. And that's pretty much what they did. David Kaplan, historian of the Yakuza, wrote that Toyama and Uchida would reign as the Marx and Lenin of the Japanese ultranationalist movement. And like, well, comparisons like that are not my favorite, the quote seems to accurately portray them as that level of importance to the movement. Also, I don't really get the Marx and Lenin versus Marx and Engels. Like, the metaphor is a little sloppy, but whatever. So how did Japan come to invade Manchuria? Why? Through more murder and false flag attacks, of course. First came the murder of the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zhulin in 1928. They blew up a train that carried him. This helped eliminate one of the figures that would have been able to stop the Japanese in any meaningful way, much like getting Empress Myung-sung out of the way in Korea. The intention was for this to be the event that would trigger intervention and full invasion, like in Korea, 
but for various internal political reasons, Japan couldn't commit at that time, so they had to wait several years. In 1931, they ran a false flag attack known as the Mukden or Manchurian Incident. The man in charge was Lieutenant Colonel Ishihara Kanji, who has been described as brilliant and eccentric. He had been a military attaché stationed in Berlin, where he read Nietzsche. Kanji was a follower of some of the more apocalyptic interpretations of the Buddhist monk Nichiren. Through his reading of Nietzsche and Nichiren, Kanji believed that a cataclysmic total war against the West was coming where Japan would defeat the Soviet Union and the United States and would become the dominant world power. In true fascist fashion, Ishihara strove to invent an incident where Japan would seem like the victim and China the bully, thereby justifying Japan's invasion. The historian Luis Young said, Inverting the roles of victim and aggressor transformed a Japanese military conspiracy into a righteous war of self-defense which is precisely what the Nazis tried to do in their speeches as well. And of course, with the false flag attacks at the Reichstag and the Gleiwitz incident, the Reichstag event, of course, justified them seizing power, and the Gleiwitz incident, of course, justified invading Poland. The opportunity came for Japan in 1931, when the Manchurian warlord refused to extend the lease for the South Manchurian Railway Company. Tempers flared up and Manchurian farmers attacked the Japanese that were present. Separately, the Chinese caught a Japanese officer carrying surveying instruments and packs of narcotics, and they executed him. Under this tension, Colonel Ishihara then chose to blow up a unimportant stretch of the railway and blamed it on the Chinese. Then in retaliation they fired artillery on the Chinese army base nearby and then machine gun massacred the survivors in a well-executed surprise attack. Following that they launched rapid attacks all across Manchuria, ultimately seizing and pacifying the territory. Japan was swept up in war fever and it was common for newspapers and magazines to report that 10 Japanese could defeat a 100 Chinese. On the ground in Manchuria, as they took over, the Japanese army pre-justified widespread killing of Chinese civilians by arguing that anyone in the street in Manchuria is a plainclothes soldier. So we see that free fire zones are not a new invention of the Vietnam War, right? But it certainly reminds me of that. Then Japan announced that Manchuria would become the independent nation of Manchukuo. There is so much to this, and I couldn't begin to cover it all. Like, you could write entire books on this topic. But, for one thing, Japan argued that all 30 million people living in the boundaries of Manchuria were ethnic Manchu. This was incorrect. The Manchu were actually an ethnic minority in Manchuria. The Han Chinese were actually the majority. Japan argued that all 30 million were ethnic Manchu and thereby deserved their own state separate from China, to be guided and protected by the Japanese, naturally. The League of Nations sent a delegation led by the Earl of Lytton. Ding, ding, ding. Now for my premium subscribers, you will definitely remember my episode on Edward Bulwer-Lytton, the science fiction horror author <laughs> who also occupied a very high office of government. That's his grandson. 
it's the same it's the same family how crazy is that not that you know the report on the manchurian incident really relates to you know bulwer lynn's legacy or anything in regards to uh you know rosicrucian philosophy or anything it's just interesting to see him pop up in this story so the earl of lytton wrote a report about the manchurian incident and they determined that nothing happened that the japanese had committed the aggression and that the state of manchukuo was a puppet regime japan in response attempted to serve the delegation fruit laced with cholera but nobody got sick after Lytton's report came out, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations, and this, you know, paired with everything else, set Japan on a collision path with the West. Now, to set up Manchukuo, they actually tapped the current mayor of Mukden, who was a Japanese national named Colonel Doihara Kenji. Being mayor was just his cover, however. He was actually one of Japan's top secret agents, and he was director of military intelligence for the region. Kenji was a huge fan of T.E. Lawrence, and he has been called by some the Lawrence of Manchuria. Colonel Doihara Kenji and his Japanese forces visited Pu Yi, who was the final Manchu emperor of China, and the last of the Qing dynasty, who was residing in Beijing at the time. When Colonel Doihara offered to make Pu Yi the emperor of Manchukuo, Pu Yi hesitated. But Colonel Doihara sent Puyi a basket of fruit containing an unexploded bomb as a message. So Puyi accepted. You might say they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. The Japanese propped up Puyi as Emperor of Manchukuo. This is depicted in the film The Last Emperor by Bernardo Bertolucci, if you've seen that film, dear listener. Now, Let's talk about a genderqueer spy. Let's talk about the Eastern Matahari. So when the Japanese brought Puyi to Manchukuo, they distracted him with heroin and with a mistress known as the Eastern Jewel. Her name was Yoshiko Kawashima. She was a 24-year-old Manchu princess. The Seagraves wrote that she had served the rising sun with both men and women since her teens. As a child, she was basically given to a man named Naniwa Kawashima, who became her adoptive father. He was a Japanese man engaged in espionage in Manchuria. Yoshiko Kawashima accused him of raping her when she was 17. Presumably related to this, she attempted to shoot herself with a pistol once in her adolescence. She was educated in Japan, and, get this, she was very fond of cross-dressing, and I do mean cross-dressing in the modern sense. A Japanese newspaper had a headline, Kawashima Yoshiko's beautiful black hair completely cut off because of unfounded rumors makes firm decision to become a man. In another article, she wrote, I was born with what the doctors call a tendency towards the third sex, and so I cannot pursue in an ordinary woman's goals in life. Since I was young, I've been dying to do the things that boys do. My impossible dream is to work hard like a man for China, for Asia. Kawashima also used the male Japanese grammar. Kawashima worked for the aforementioned Kenji Doihara, often undercover, and about half the time dressed as a man. But she would also play the role as a glamorous, attractive female. She seduced and distracted Emperor Pu Yi, like we talked about but she was also the mistress of Heotada, Puyi's chief military advisor. 
Later on, she led an anti-guerrilla army of 5,000. Japanese newspapers called her the Joan of Arc of Manchukuo. In the memoir, Confessions of a Yakuza, the Yakuza describes being stationed in Korea as a soldier. And he wrote, There was a woman there called Okiku of Manchuria. She was one of the best known, who was supposed to be a force to be reckoned with, and she had at least 5,000 followers of her own. This is in a passage talking about the warlords in Manchuria. Kawashima was a very interesting character. I think she would merit her own episode for sure. We are going to catch up with her in the following episode. But let's keep talking about Manchukuo. So it probably goes without saying that the Japanese started looting what treasures Manchuria had to offer, which appeared to be less than in Korea, yet still not insubstantial. Now, Manchukuo's got a very curious legacy, because on the one hand, it was about as brazenly a case of outright imperialist theft and exploitation as you might expect, but on the other hand, there's this very weird legacy of, like, attempts to do real progressive policies. And no, I don't mean that in a national socialism, but from the left type of way. You'll see what I mean in a second. The historian Louis Young noted that many of the Japanese civil servants that were sent to Manchuria were or had been on the political left in Japan. They ended up in Manchuria because Japan could not afford to sideline almost an entire generation of left-wing intelligentsia that they needed to run their empire. In 1925, Japan passed the Peace Preservation Law, which made it literally illegal to even think about altering Japan's system of government. Like, no, I'm not exaggerating. On top of that, Japanese people who studied in New Mandarin were, speaking politically and speaking generally, more progressive than not. That's why Despite being basically just naked imperialism, Manchukuo had weirdly progressive policies. They had a five-year plan modeled after the Soviet Union. They had extensive infrastructure programs as well. Between 1932 to 1938, 48 Manchurian cities were laid out with running water, a sewer system, flush toilets, electricity, gas, telegraph systems, roads, railways, and military facilities. I say all this not to praise Manchukuo necessarily. The Manchukuo civil service paid lip service to a type of social revolution, which created a really schizophrenic state of affairs. In a lot of ways, the Japanese liberal and leftist civil servants were in Manchukuo to be isolated and brainwashed to themselves, basically. And I'm not being metaphorical. These civil servants had to go through a explicit brainwashing program run by the Kempe Tai. It was called Tenko, or Changing Directions. And its goal was to turn liberals and leftists into militant nationalists devoted to serving the emperor. The brainwashing techniques appeared to have been largely just imprisonment, beatings, and social pressure. Nothing fancy, no psychosurgery, I don't even think drugs were really involved. But this Tenko, it was supposed to be very effective, especially in the context of Japanese society as a whole. And if you're keeping track, yes, brainwashing in Manchuria seems to have started with the Japanese. And this is where it first got on the map with regard to brainwashing, before the Soviets and the Chinese were involved in the Korean War, supposedly also doing brainwashing. 
and it goes without saying that you can't get into Manchukuo and help push an evil imperialist puppet regime to the left. And all of these Japanese civil servants' attempts to improve the lives of the average Manchurian failed, even harder than attempts to enact any reforms in Japan. I'm not sure if there are any lessons to be drawn from today, I wonder. Now let's get into the crimes. Manchuria was flooded with Yakuza, who aided the Japanese nationalists, and they also rushed in to participate in what was mostly fraudulent land development programs, which functionally meant going back to basically like a feudal slave system. We are going to talk about the Yakuza at length in the future, don't you worry. When the Japanese first invaded, the first thing they did was to loot Manchurian banks, like right off the bat. Then they printed new script, and eventually they had a currency. Everyone was forced to exchange actual Chinese money for this script. The Chosen Bank of Korea, which was a Japanese bank based in Korea, they established 20 branches in Manchuria to help carry this out. They also had an office in New York to help obtain American loans for the development of Manchuria, which of course were defaulted on and never repaid. They, and by they I mean mainly Black Dragon, with the assistance of the Kempeitai and sometimes the Japanese army, they carried out extortion schemes. One case is particularly well documented because it happened to a European Jewish hotel owner. He had his child kidnapped. The Jewish community suspected that the Kempeitai was involved. Anyway, this hotel owner refused to pay the ransom, and they later found his child's body beaten, starved, tortured, mutilated, and shot. The Kempeitai made some arrests, but released them. This incident caused many of the Jewish community to leave Manchuria, but of course that was not an option for the majority of the 30 million Manchurians. The Japanese occupation ran burglaries, currency fraud, bank robberies, but those are not consistent revenue sources. Like, you can only steal so much. The real money came from the drug trade, which became Manchukuo's chief product. Real dope dealers for real! Dirty the money is homicide. And my recipe can be televised. Y'all nigga move that dope. 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 Y'all nigga
became the world's largest producer of opium, morphine, and heroin. To quote the Seagraves on this, in 1911, the region had produced less than 2,500 kilos of opium. Fifteen years later, the annual production on Mantetsu territory and huge farms taken over by the Japanese underworld rose to 36,000 kilos. After Japan seized all of Manchuria in 1932, Tens of thousands of hectares were put under poppy production, and dozens of laboratories were built to convert opium tar into various grades of morphine and heroin. Under protection of the Manchukuo army, drug traffickers in Manchuria spread their distribution across the Great Wall down into north and central China. The central bank of Manchukuo built up major reserves from profits generated by the army drug monopoly. Pharmaceutical factories flooded China with heroin tablets to soften it up for invasion. This monopoly was directed by Hoshino Naoki, who also ran all of Manchukuo's finances. Naoki was later promoted to Emperor Hirohito's chief cabinet secretary position, directly linking him to Japan's illegal drug trade, which the emperor absolutely knew about and profited from. What's more, the entire world knew. In 1934, the Opium Advisory Commission in Geneva accused Japan of operating the world's largest single illicit drug syndicate. And Mitsui, Japan's oldest zaibatsu, mind you, was in charge of processing the opium into morphine and heroin. Nissan, another respected Japanese zaibatsu, engaged in slave labor in Manchuria at this time. Even worse, they ran just heinous programs, like distributing free medicine to people that was spiked with morphine. They would also give out free golden bat cigarettes laced with heroin in order to entrap more people into addiction. They estimate that that their drug trade profits reached 300 million a year, which would be something like 3 billion a year in today's value. They used heroin futures as collateral for bank loans with foreign governments, which, like, that's insane. And the Kempeitai and the Japanese Army Intelligence Division also ran opium dens. People monitoring the drug trade at the time estimated that, by 1937, 90% of all illicit narcotics were coming from Manchuria. What's more, and this is crazy to me, Japanese organized crime in the United States goes way back, like way earlier than you would think. The dominant form was, and always has been, running gambling dens servicing the Japanese-American community. Mostly based in Los Angeles, the headquarters was the Tokyo Club in Little Tokyo, but they had franchises up and down the West Coast, from Seattle to Mexico. Anywhere there was a Japanese immigrant community, there was at least one gambling den run by them. They accumulated capital quickly. They were making more than one million a year. The Tokyo Club began operating as a bank. They started supporting sports teams and bribing police and city officials, more or less like any ethnic group in the United States at this time. 
Howard M. Imazeki, the late editor of the Hokube Mainichi, which was San Francisco's Japanese-American daily, said, We didn't call them Yakuza then, but now I think that's probably what they were. There's a long history of various murders that they carried out, and it is comparable to Chicago gangs and how they operated, basically. If not maybe in scale, then certainly, like, in practice. Now, if you're anything like me, you might have a knee-jerk reaction to anything Harry J. Hanslinger says. He was the chief of the Bureau of Narcotics. He was a crazy racist, of course, and he has a long history of lying for institutional and political and bureaucratic ends. But, I mean, not everything he said was a lie, right? He said that in this pre-war period, quote, we should not be far short of the mark if we said that 60% of all the illicit white drugs of the world are of Japanese origin, manufactured in the Japanese cities of Manchuria, always under Japanese supervision, unquote. Now, he might be over-exaggerating the amount of drugs coming into the country from, you know, the Pacific route, and under-reporting on drugs coming from, like, Mexico and from, like, you know, the French connection, but it doesn't mean that he was far off the mark. And, to be fair, it wasn't just Anslinger saying this. So, too, did a 1942 study by the Institute of Pacific Relations and the Foreign Policy Association. They said, During the years 1932 to 1937, the Japanese occupation in Manchuria became the headquarters for a vast opium and narcotic drug industry. Whole sections of the concession were honeycombed with narcotics dens and small laboratories manufacturing various types of heroin powder and cigarettes. Moreover, opium dens in occupied China were also run by the Japanese, or by associated Taiwanese and Korean drug dealers. Armed Japanese gangsters were often stationed outside dens to prevent interference with their operation. Unquote. Some of these drugs were sent to the United States. While most of the drug trade came through other routes, the Bureau of Narcotics tracked the appearance of Japanese morphine in the United States, which was called cotton morphine because of its appearance. They first noticed it in 1932, just one year after the Japanese takeover of Manchuria. They made small but sizable and growing busts of Japanese morphine in Tacoma, Portland, and Hawaii in the 1930s. Then, as a showdown between Japan and the U.S. grew more and more likely, more and more drugs were being brought into the United States through Japanese steamships, and there appeared West Coast distribution networks headed by Japanese Americans. For example, in 1935, they arrested Fujiyuki Motomura, who was a major San Pedro drug trafficker. They found him with 5,000 in cocaine and morphine, which at that time, that was around 10 pounds of that stuff. Now, that might not sound like heavy weight now, but remember, this is 1935. This bust led to further busts in Southern California of the same network. Of much greater significance, the Japanese were selling heroin to the more powerful Jewish and Italian crime syndicates in the United States. The San Francisco mob boss, Mario Balistrieri, bought directly from dealers in Japan, for instance. These networks were basically severed upon Japanese-American internment, 
which of course is not like to be taken as an endorsement of internment per se, right? Now's a good time to briefly introduce someone that will that we will talk about much more later. Yoshio Kodama. Kodama was born in occupied Korea to Japanese parents. As a youth, he was involved in another far-right secret society, the National Foundation Society. I'm kind of obsessed with the names of these Japanese patriotic societies. I find it, like, I love to hear the different names. This National Foundation Society was a very interesting pan-Asian pro-Japanese group which had some very curious views on the unity of colored races against the West. We will definitely return to that idea in the future. This society also had some other interesting views, but the key thing that they were was virulently anti-communist, and they were not unlike the Nazi party in that they were radical and subverting progressive politics and anti-communist. So Kodama went to prison over, you know, a patriotic incident, to use a euphemism, but he later emerged and started wheeling and dealing in Manchuria. David Kaplan's book on the Yakuza calls Kodama a sort of imperial Japanese version of Catch-22's Milo Minder Binder, buying tungsten here, guns there, reselling them, and peddling vast stores of, of radium, cobalt, nickel, and copper. He obtained the materials in China and Manchuria, forcing the Chinese at gunpoint to sell at pitifully low prices. It was an incredibly lucrative effort, one that might easily be termed looting. Kodama, however, saw differently. His enterprises, unlike other so-called development firms in the conquered territories, grew out of an ill-suppressed idealism. His agency, said Kodama, was an organization with no thought of profit, and since it was simply composed of a group of self-sacrificing youths, I was only able to continue my work through the sincere efforts of the men cooperating with me. Such sincere efforts apparently pay off because by the end of the war, Kodama had become a financial giant with working capital of 175 million invested in industrial diamonds and platinum as well as banknotes. With so many self-sacrificing youths working for him, Kodama found time to continue his intelligence work. He ran operations for Section 8 of the General Staff Office in Shanghai, which handled intelligence. In addition, he financed the Shanghai operation of the Kempeitai. Still, the demands of his industrial kingdom must have left increasingly little time for spy missions. By the early 1940s, according to U.S. intelligence reports, Kodama's company controlled iron, salt, and mines for other minerals, and operated farms, fisheries, and secret munitions plants through much of central China. And although it might not have been his usual line of work, and at times Kodama acted as a go-between for major heroin for minerals deals, unquote. So Kodama's importance will become much more clear in future episodes, and I will probably do a better biography of him, but just remember his name, and I will remind you of him when he comes up again over and over again. If all of this weren't enough, Manchuria was also where Japan put their main biological warfare program, known as Unit 731, run by Shiro Ishii. 
They also had smaller installments in Beijing, Canton, and Singapore. These installments were built by slaves who were then murdered to keep the locations secret. There are credible reports of Chinese POWs forced to march through fields of poison gas as experiments. Of course, we saw the hints of their interest in biological and chemical warfare when they attempted to poison the fruit basket of the Litton delegation earlier, right? There is so much to Unit 731, we might have to return to them later. And in Manchuria, sexual slavery and brothels were widespread too, as you might imagine. Now, among the Japanese in the imperial courts, Manchuria was actually considered more of a failure than Korea, because there was not enough coal or agricultural output to justify its expenses in the eyes of Japanese high command. It was a success in terms of the loot they got, but, you know, like we said, you can't loot forever, and you can't get around certain basic economic realities. The answer, as they saw it, was not to develop Manchuria. The answer was to devour China. For sources today, I used Stephen Gowan's book, Patriots, Traitors, and Empire, The Story of Korea's Struggle for Freedom, I also used Sterling and Peggy Seagrave's book, Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold. I also used the book Yakuza, Japan's Criminal Underworld. And I also used the book Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy by Phyllis Birnbaum. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check me out on Patreon to get additional content. Some people have described it as the free show being the vegetables and the Patreon as the dessert. But either way, check it out. And I need to be on my way to Nanking. See you next episode, and God bless.